Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Doug Landis, growth partner at Emergence Capital. We will be covering three main areas in today's discussion. The story behind a journey from chief storyteller to a VC growth partner, the metrics that matter to growth stage funds when evaluating investments, and three, the metrics that are most predictive of growth success. Doug, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Thanks, Ray. You know what they say, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I think for me, how I ended up here is, you know, listen, I spent my entire life basically just innately and deeply ingrained in the world of go-to-market and sales, similar to my friend, Scott Lease, who as a mutual connection of ours, big fan of his. And given the fact that you guys are digging deep into like these core metrics. I'm a big fan of yours. In fact, I've already learned a ton from you in the previous conversations that we had. I'm a salesperson at heart. I've been selling since I was a little kid, ever since I was selling newspapers in my newspaper route, trying to add more houses to my route, all the way to selling software. I was fortunate enough to go work at Oracle in the early days, which I highly recommend to anybody that's getting into sales because they teach you an incredible amount of discipline. You know, it's hard making a hundred calls a day, but it's even harder when you're worried about getting fired. Fortunately enough, growing up in the Bay Area, I was privy to a ton of technology startups, if you will, and companies. You know, Google started, Oracle, HP, Sun Microsystems, you name it. So I had access to all the right people. But one of the things that's really mattered to me is building connections and sharing those connections. And I think that's really important. And that's part of the reason why we got connected. In fact, I don't actually know the dots and how they all lined up for us to get here, but yeah, I was super fortunate. So I was at Salesforce for a long time from the early days to about, I don't know, 16, 17,000 people. And then I left to go to Box to go help build their go-to-market function, run sales productivity globally, went through an IPO there. And one of the things that happened that I noticed at Box was, and this is super common in the world of startups and as the startups continue to get bigger, but think about it this way. So you build a pitch deck to go raise money from your VCs, especially at the series A. And in that pitch deck, you talk about the problem you're trying to solve, the market size and the value add, et cetera. And then you go raise some capital. So you go hire some salespeople. You take the pitch deck that you used to go raise money and you give that to your reps. And you're like, here, go use this to go sell. And it's just insanely self-serving and all about you, 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 and what you do and how great you are. And what's interesting is I realized we kind of had that same kind of DNA at Box. And it happened actually because we brought in a new CRO and we were doing the rounds trying to get his sense of how we talk about Box and what we did. And after about 20 different conversations, he looked at me and he's like, hey, guess what? We have no consistency about who we are, talking about who we are and what we do. And that's a real problem. And so I really started digging into that. And that's where I kind of left the world of sales productivity. And I created this role of chief storyteller, working directly with Aaron, trying to figure out like, hey, how do we talk about who we are by getting ourselves out of the way and using more of the voice of our customers? And it's one thing if you're Aaron Levy or Mark Benioff or John or whoever it is, your CEO and founder, they have incredible credibility to talk about who they are from their point of view, because they also know the industry and their customers probably better than anybody else. But when you're a rep and you try and replicate that, you lose a ton of credibility because you have this thing called sales in your voice. And it's also not even your own voice. 
So my job was to flip all that upside down on its head and help us tell better stories. And then emergence came knocking. They're like, hey, we want to add more value to our portfolio companies. And I know this is a really long answer. And lo and behold, I'm in BC doing the same thing for all of our portfolio companies. And it's a blast. Well, that is an interesting story, but I like your chief storytelling. And you talked about CEOs have a different voice, but yes. I've seen people take that pitch deck that they sold the investment to the VCs. They hand it to marketing. They talk to industry analysts and they tweak oh. it a little bit. Then they hand that to sales and the salesperson is like, I'm not talking to an industry analyst. I'm not talking to a financial investor. I'm talking to a buyer who's got his or her own emotional and business needs. I'm with you, Doug. Yeah. And it's not anybody's fault because guess what? You use that deck to sell investors, to invest in you and to give you a lot of capital. And so there's definitely a lot of great pieces in there, but it's how it's positioned. It's how it's used. It's how it's leveraged. That's really what matters. By the way, on a side note, there's also a lot of people that just don't know how to storytell. I would argue that my opening, just even when you asked me, was a little rambling and all over the place. And I will give myself probably about a C minus on that. Because at the end of the day, I wasn't really clear in my head because we just got on a call, but what point I was trying to make, right? And I think that's one of the big challenges with salespeople and even early stage founders when they're going to pitch to VCs is, you know, you kind of ramble and you get all over the place. So I'll shut up now. <laughs> well, it's interesting. On the last podcast, I had the authors of a book called Selling the Cloud. It was Paul Macchiari, who's famous from his Ariba and then Anaplan days. Yep. And also Mark Petruzzi. And they were talking about the best lessons they ever learned on how to tell a story wasn't from the tech industry. It was from friends in Hollywood who were producers yep. who told stories for a living. And it was like, yeah. if you ever get a chance, do that. By the way, side note, I'm also a professionally trained actor. I started acting when I was a little kid. And that's actually really where you learn how to get into characters and tell a story that may not even be yours. On top of that, I will say some of the best training you could ever have for your sales organization is do improv training. It's so powerful. So good. Talk about being real and sincere and present and also, you know, how to craft a narrative in a matter of seconds that actually has an impact. I mean, super powerful. So yeah, I totally get it. Yeah. And we could go hours on this. But I was <laughs> yeah, lucky. Totally. I'm old school and I was trained for 10 years at GE when GE was kind of the management development institute that the world admired. And I spent six months on presentation training. Yep. It was basically taking hardcore technology and how do you make it engaging and interesting to non-technology buyers? Yep. 100%. So one of the reasons I invited you to be a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast is I was reading a LinkedIn post you made a few months ago regarding the metrics that growth stage funds, like emergence, evaluate when they're conducting investment diligence. And specifically, you said the head of sales, CRO, need to know all these metrics. And you listed like 12 or 13, but I'm going to make you prioritize. Oh. Doug, what are the five most important metrics that a CRO or head of sales needs to know before they engage with investment due diligence? Wow. Oh boy. Okay. Well, clearly we need to know all about your revenue run rate, right? So beginning ARR, new ARR, expansion ARR, churn, like what's going on on the revenue side of the business? That's kind of table stakes, right? So that's clearly number one. The other thing we're also looking for too, kind of connected to that is customers and logos. Like how many net new logos are we adding on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis? That says a lot about you know, are you growing as a result of new customers? Are you growing as a result of expanding within existing accounts, right? And not to say that one's better than the other, but it's just really, really important to understand where is the revenue coming from across the business. 
of course, you know, <laughs> as investors, we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you're growing efficiently and that you're being capitally efficient. So you're really smart about your efficiency growth. So we want to know things about, you know, gross margin, payback, CAC ratio, the magic number, et cetera. Like how much are you actually spending to go generate a dollar? So I would say that's number three. Of course, we also need to understand pipeline. Where's your pipeline coming from? How easy or hard is it to actually generate pipeline? Which also tells us, do you really truly understand your customers and your target market? And is that target market that you think, and especially when you go talk to VCs, we always hear these TAMs of like, oh, it's in the multi-billions or it's in the trillions. And it's like, all right, cool. What's actually serviceable? The pipeline gives us a better sense of, you know, how connected are you to your customers? And do you really have an understanding of how to actually go get access to them? The other thing is too, like that also tells us we need to go immediately hire someone in marketing to help us kind of generate that pipeline so that we can go actually feed the AEs that we want to go hire. Or do we have enough inbound that we need to filter out and actually just continue to crank up? Right. And then, you know, I would say outside of that, you know, we also kind of connected that as just the funnel conversion metrics. That's where I really dig into. As investors, we're going to dig into that more just from an understanding of the health of the business. But yeah, I would say those are probably the top five out of the 14. Okay, now we're into my sweet spot. I love talking about this stuff. So (laughs) I'm not going to go into what you said. I'm going to highlight one that you didn't discuss. And I'd love to know if you think, especially if they have a truly integrated marketing sales and customer success team, why you didn't mention that. And that is... It's retention plus growth, and it's really net dollar retention rate, which to me says a lot about the value of even a 5 million, 10 million AR company. Totally agree. Net dollar retention is, yeah, that should be on the top five. So shame on me for not mentioning it. I tend to look at it as, I guess I would put that kind of in that churn bucket, right? So like, what is the overall value of a customer? Are we losing any of those customers? Are we actually adding more value to those customers? The thing about it is though, so just a little curveball for you. When you get to series A, you're usually about a million in revenue. And so net dollar retention is a little harder to actually measure because a lot of your early customers are still early customers. They're still in their first year, right? So they haven't renewed. Now we might've been able to expand them. Maybe we sold in the one division, one department and we're actually able to expand. So yes, the net dollar retention then would actually be quite high, but we're still in those kind of early renewal situation conversations. Oh, Doug, totally agree. In fact, what we recommend to our clients is net dollar retention. And first for some of an audience that doesn't know what net dollar retention is, it really measures customer retention plus growth on a dollar of ARR basis. So what that says is at the beginning of an accounting period, let's say you have $1 million of ARR. And for that same customer cohort at the end of an accounting period, are they 100%, 110%, 120% of ARR from that cohort? And that includes both downsells, churn, but also upsells, cross-sells, and expansion revenue. Yep, for sure. So there's net dollar retention, but you also need to pay attention to logos. So here's the thing, your churn number, because again, early days, maybe you're selling to real transactional commercial type customers, right? Where your, your ACV is in the five to 10K. Well, if you're losing customers that are, you know, $1,000, $1,200 in terms of revenue, you know, that may not be as bad as if you're losing a big logo that was significantly worth 40, 50,000 or $100,000 contract. Oh. Totally agree. And I'd like to ask you this from a growth stage fund perspective. If you've got two or three different ICPs or target markets, let's say you are pretty good at that commercial or mid-market, but you've also done pretty well at the enterprise level. Maybe it's greater than a billion dollars of revenue or greater than 10,000 employees. How important do you think having these metrics by customer cohort are in your evaluation? 
Crucial. And here's why. So, and I, I'm going to keep going back to series A, which is the space that we swim in. One of our core values is focus drives conviction, right? And so we work with our portfolio companies. It is to get them to focus. So you have to be really careful about going up market too quickly because it can be a huge distraction, massive distraction, right? So if you're finding a tremendous amount of success in the enterprise, and then you've got some customers, maybe some of your earlier customers were kind of commercial bin market, you may have to make a decision as to where do we focus our efforts? Are we going to just purely focus on the Fortune 2000? Or are we going to let's nail kind of the commercial and mid-market and then work our way up to the enterprise? There are so many implications there, right? Because the product has to be ready. You have to actually have more people in terms of support and staffing and implementation integration. So the back half, if you will, of the organization needs to be more staffed to support that. Of course, product needs to be able to support when you add 10,000 people hitting the product all at one time. Yeah, totally agree. There's a lot of things that go into moving up to the enterprise market. But going back, one other thing I'd like to talk to you about, because you've mentioned Series A, and that's kind of your sweet spot, right? Yeah. Where you like to get involved. Yep. You mentioned CAC payback period. And for our listening audience, CAC payback period really measures how long it takes to earn back your customer acquisition costs on a gross margin adjusted basis. It really looks at gross margin. Right. Question to you. Do you think at Series A at one or two million, you have enough history on churn to really know what CAC payback period is? No, I think CAC is like, we look at it at Series A, we're like, okay, that looks healthy, but it's still too early. So is it a significant metric that we pay attention to that says, oh my gosh, this business is falling apart or it's totally worth investing? I wouldn't say that's one of like the core metrics. It does give us a sense for how much are we actually spending and burning to actually get our customers, right? So that's more important. Like, are you spending a dollar to get a dollar worth of customer? Are you spending $3? Like how much have you invested? And the truth is, is this going to cost you more early days to actually get a customer than it is once you've kind of got the machine fully running and well-oiled. Yeah. So let me dive into this even a little deeper, but from a different perspective, you had another <laughs> post on LinkedIn that I read that you talked about marketing uh -oh. and sales integration and yeah. you know, marketing and sales alignment. Everyone's talking about it, but think about all the metrics we just discussed, whether it's ARR growth, whether it's new name, customer expansion, net dollar retention, CAC payback period, even cash efficiency. And less than 10% of companies I work with does the head of marketing, in sales, in customer success, all co-own some of these enterprise value creating metrics? Why do you think that is? And do you think if they did share those goals, that would help with true marketing and sales integration? Yeah. And by the way, I love the idea of marketing and sales integration and not alignment. It's easy to be aligned. Like, okay, cool. I see what you're doing. Yep. We're aligned. I, I get it. But the problem is, is historically, we're all so used to working within our swim lanes. So we're talking about retraining and reorienting what has been the traditional, shall we say, marching orders that we've had in each part of the organization. And I think one of the things you're starting to see is the lines are starting to get a little bit more blurred, right? What, five years ago, the evolution of the CRO really came about, right? Now, of course, they probably were SVP of sales of some sort, or maybe chief sales officer. But CRO really was about like, hey, I own everything revenue. And what's really interesting is there's not a lot of sales leaders that actually have had that experience where they own all parts of revenue, meaning like I own demand gen and marketing, I own direct selling, indirect selling, I own customer success piece that's responsible for expansion, renewals, and account management, right? So I own all revenue. That to me, once that started happening, we started to realize, well, guess what? Marketing is a part of the revenue engine. Customer success is part of the revenue engine. It's not just about sales. 
And so we all have to be integrated. We're all responsible for driving revenue for the organization. It's not just the direct selling organization. So integration is really, really important. It's really hard to do. Why? Because incentives drive behavior, right? For organization, take a look at what are your incentive structures for your marketing organization? What are they incented on? Are they incented on MQLs? Oof, hate that. Are they incented on like number of attendees to your webinars? Woo, yay. Or are they really incented on revenue? closed business that was influenced or driven by some of your marketing activities. Awesome. Now there's more integration because guess what? Marketing needs to help sales sell. How often are marketers actually creating assets and materials and being really thoughtful about when a customer is actually in cycle? And let's say they've moved past the discovery stage and now they're in like the negotiation or you're like validating, you know, solution with power or whatever it may be. Right? What is marketing doing for the sellers at that stage to help our prospects really understand the value that we offer as an organization? Or are we just relying on the salespeople to have that narrative? In addition, how does that carry over once we're into customer success and we're driving? How often does a customer success manager have to resell the entire solution to the customer? Because the time it took to close it, to hand it off to customer success, customers like, wait, what do we buy? What am I paying for? What is this all about? And then CS has to resell it. And all of a sudden the customer is like, wait a minute. I thought I was told it does X, Y, and Z. And now there's a gap, right? It could be alignment if we all understand what we're all doing. But integration means we all have accountability to our customers and what's happening with them. Yeah. Let me give you an example of something that we have a lot of our customers doing and see what you think of this. And this is more oh, yeah. than that 5 million above, but yep. we know almost everyone is reporting to their board of directors and investors, their CAC ratio and CAC payback period. Oh yeah. Every quarter. Here we so go. What we've done is saying, okay, guys, every go-to-market department, whether that's sales, sales development, marketing, and even customer success, if they have any expansion responsibility, we create a CAC ratio for their departments. We have a marketing CAC ratio, which basically says for every dollar of marketing investment that we make, predictably, how many dollars of ARR is going to be from inbound marketing leads, not even influence. Sales development, same thing. What do you think about having those department I, I love that. I think that would scare a lot of people because that will actually shine a light in areas where I think more focus is required, right? So, I mean, look, sales and marketing leaders can't often even agree on what an MQL is, right? So you're going to hold me accountable to a CAC ratio on inbound when I'm bringing in all, I'm a marketing leader speaking right now, when I'm bringing in all these inbound leads and the sales team is so terrible, they can't close them, right? So why should I get punished? Why should that be part of my bonus and incentive structure? So I think what it's doing is it's shining light on some of the challenges that we have, both on the partnership between marketing and sales and the partnership between sales and customer success. But I love it. I love it because it would force people to be like, hey, let's just come to a happy medium. Like we're all in this together. We're not in this to fight one another because we're trying to make more money or whatever. Because the truth is, especially if you're in an IPO organization, we're all going to make out. Well, and Doug, the reason we recommend it is... I think about the budgeting process. Hey, we just raised $10 million from emergence. Now we're going to scale customer acquisition. How in the heck do you know whether you should invest 6 million in sales and 4 million in marketing or eight and two or four and six, unless you have some insight into the return on that investment. Otherwise you just say it's a 70-30 split and I'm just going to allocate the dollars that way. Yep. 
Well, you know, you talk about return on investment. Sometimes you get to series A, you just raise a $25 million series A. And you're like, I got plenty of cash in the bank. I don't need to think about that. I got to get product out the door. I got to generate more customers. I've got to show that crazy ass hockey stick, right? Because that's how I'm going to get to my B. You know, unfortunately that happens a lot in the world of the startup, you know, universe is like, okay, I'm doing all this at this valuation now. And then, you know, you get these crazy valuations. What early stage founders don't realize is like the implications there are now there's more pressure for you to execute. There's more pressure for you to perform. Right. And so maybe corners are cut in that regard versus like, Hey, we're going to actually grow smart and profitably you know, look at Zoom, like they did a brilliant job. They were profitable from the early days because they largely probably followed your advice, which is like, hey, let's just be really, really mindful about the metrics that matter while we're also growing at scale. They also had, you know, their model was clearly different than a lot of others, but yeah. It was funny. I hosted the former CEO of Cloudera. His name's Tom Riley, and he's had two very successful sales of companies to IBM and HP and then took Cloudera public. And one of the most famous things about Cloudera is they raised $776 million of strategic investment from Intel pre-IPO. And he was saying, Ray, the biggest risk of raising too much money, so whether it's 25 million at series A or 766 million at series C, you lose some focus on operational efficiency Totally. and measuring things like marginal efficiency, i.e. you're investing more money in a new marketing channel or a new sales channel. You've got to understand that marginal efficiency of every dollar you're investing, you're going to get really sloppy. Yep. I totally agree. Uh, Hey, early stage startup founders, listen to that advice right there. Grow smart. Grow smart. Be be efficient. And make sure if you are hired as the VP of sales, you're not the CRO and you don't have marketing sales and customer success, or you're the head of marketing. The first thing I would recommend you do is sit down with your other go-to-market leaders and come up with some shared goals and say, we own this together. Totally. Because if you can do that early, you're going to hopefully break that, hey, average VP of sales last 14, 18 months in startups or an average CMO last 18 to 24 months, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Well, and then get away from the finger pointing and the blame game, which typically happens. All of a sudden things go a little sideways. Oh, we're, you know, our numbers were down a little bit. It's like, everyone's like, oh, well, marketing, you didn't, you know, generate it. We didn't generate enough leads on the marketing side. And well, sales, your win rates are down. It's like, okay, let's just talk about the facts. And then let's talk about, you know, why it happened not pointing fingers. I mean, the reality is it could be market conditions. It can be new competitors. It could be your pricing and packaging is off. It could be, there's so many different scenarios that could be impacting the business. So just have a really healthy conversation. Be like, look, we've got these goals. So let's go after it. By the way, I love the CAC percentage goals that you were just talking about. I think that's really smart. Well, I'm going to do something that a lot of great entrepreneurs have been very successful on. That is pivoting, Doug. Oh, sweet. Pivot to (laughs) something that probably is more passionate about than just metrics and that's benchmarks. I often was brought in to run to go to market teams when a company got to five to $20 million, you know, like how do we get to 15 and then a hundred. And one of the first things I always did was I looked at the key performance indicators and metrics they had, and I would try to benchmark those against like companies and say, Hey guys, you know, I know you think you're doing pretty well, but it looks like we're at 25th percentile or at 50th percentile. How do we get to 75th percentile? What do you think about the importance of having benchmarks against similar like companies, so not just industry average, and using that to make investment decisions. 
I love it, which is also why I'm just going to give a little plug for RevOps Squared, your company, because we've talked a lot about SaaS metrics, but I think unfortunately what ends up happening is we talk about kind of like the baseline metrics, but it's like, how am I benchmarking myself when I'm at 5, 15, 20 million in a specific industry? And I think that's super important. I will say from our perspective as early stage investors is first and foremost, we're in the people business right? We're in the pattern recognition business. And what I mean by pattern recognition is like, does your business support the five M's, right? Is it the right market? Do you have the right leadership? Do you have a specific superpower? How are you tracking in terms of your growth and how big is the market? Like kind of our standard ways of measuring whether or not this company's at the right place at series A or series B. But I'd say once a company gets to 10, 15 million in revenue, and they're trying to compare themselves to other companies in that same industry, the data is just not that great. It's not. And we need somebody like you guys to actually pull all that together so we can do those comparisons just in terms of overall performance. The problem is like, just think of it this way. How many early stage companies are thinking of a 3-3-2-2-2 model? That's what everybody, oh, I got to grow. I got to triple, triple, double, double, double. Okay, cool. And if I'm not doing that, oh, we're screwed. We're not going to be like, you know, world-class SaaS company. Like that's so general. I cannot tell you. We segment everything based upon not only company size, but your average annual contract value, your distribution model, actually what type of solution you have, who you're selling to, quite frankly, whether you're bootstrapped or venture-led because you have different growth rates and profitability (laughs) based upon that. Yep. Thank you. Tell you the reason that we actually ended up doing this, Doug, was I was in way too many board meetings where a board member would say, well, your cap ratio should be 1.3. And I'm like, based upon what yeah. like company variables did you come up with that answer with? <laughs> totally. There's a lot of people that just like to throw that out and be like, how come we're not like this? Exactly. So the recommendation here to whether you're a series A or a series B, and there's some great research out there from companies like KeyBank, formerly Pacific Crest. Yep. OpenView's got some really good stuff, especially on product led, SaaS Capital, Tomas at Redpoint Ventures. But one of the things I'd ask you to do is make sure you look at those cohort groups that are most like yours. Even a big difference is are you in a more mature industry segment? Yep. Are you in a missionary evangelistic? Your metrics are going to be different, right, Doug? Totally, totally. Well, what if you're creating a whole new category, exactly. right? You could, you could argue Chorus, which is one of our investments, is in the world of conversational intelligence. Dude, three years ago, four years ago, that category didn't exist. Gartner didn't have a conversation intelligence magic quadrant or a breakdown of who's, you know, who's kind of leading the space and where everybody fit. So then how do you do a comparison? Creating a new market and creating a category. It's like what Nick Meta and Gainsight had to experience for a long time. It's a slower process. You have to invest more in marketing and educating the, you know, the market as to like why right now this makes sense. And sometimes it goes faster and sometimes it goes a little slower. And then people look at Gainsight from 2018, they'll look at their metrics and say, well, that's where I need to be. But they forgot that seven years earlier, it wasn't (laughs) even Gainsight. They changed their name and they hadn't just got a billion dollar investment from Mr. Equity, right? (laughs) Totally. So true. Okay, we're going to move to our last thing. And this came from a webinar I heard you on with a B2B revenue community. I won't name it, but you were talking about enterprise selling. And you actually talked about five selling motions, right? I think you talked about product-led sales, persona-based sales, value-based selling, vertical selling, and then executive level selling. But I'm going to put that in context of this new trend, which is product-led growth. Yes. Everybody thinks about Zoom and Zendesk and Twilio. So tell me, how does product-led growth as a strategic customer acquisition model impact enterprise sales strategy? Totally. So I'm going to say it here for the first time. 
and this will not be the last time I say this, I will argue in the next three to five years, product-led growth will be the primary and the number one go-to-market strategy. Boom. Why do I say that? Well, <laughs> let's unpack that because that's a huge statement. Product-led growth is how buyers like to buy products. Product-led growth basically means I am going to give you access to the product so that you can immediately realize value in that product, i.e. the Zoom model. And based on realizing value of that product, we're then going to ask you to make an investment because you actually understand the real ROI of that product, right? That's my raw gross definition of product-led growth. The truth is, as a buyer, you can pitch to me all day long, but why do we get into these demo conversations and why do buyers get on the phone and go, cool, just show me a demo? It's because I need to feel and understand how this product's going to fit in to my existing workflow, my existing environment, my existing infrastructure, and add value. And the reality is, is when in the traditional SaaS sales model, you, your job is to do all the heavy lifting to show me that. In the world of product-led growth, I get to experience that. Right? I'm going to use a, maybe this works, maybe it doesn't, but think of like the car company Saturn, right? It was like the first car company that introduced buying a car without a salesperson. So it was really up to the person to get in the car and experience that car and be like, wow, this is great. It fits my needs. Boom. I'm buying it. Never talk to a person. I don't know if they allowed you to return it after 30 days or not, but either way, like there are car companies out right now. They're doing that. They're like, Hey, buy a car online from us. Give it back to us in two weeks. Oh, by the way, Doug. And once again, I bought a car and I'll use the name because <laughs> I have to. And it's Tesla because they've changed the entire industry. But totally. when I bought my Tesla, I ordered it 100% online. Yep. I got it and I could use it for a week up to a thousand miles. And if I didn't like it, I could return it. No questions asked. Bingo. By the way, I don't own a Tesla as a VC, so I may be an anomaly, but that's why I did not know that about Tesla, <laughs> whether or not you can return it after a week. But that's the experience as buyers that we're looking for, right? To me, largely Tesla, that's a product-led growth go-to-market strategy, right? Here is a lightweight experience of getting access to what it is that you want so you can experience it and understand where the real value is and make a decision. And the interesting thing about product-led growth is instead of SDRs, and instead of traditional salespeople, that also changes the entire kind of, we'll call it sales engagement if we move to a more product-led growth experience or product-led growth go-to-market strategy. What does that mean? It means my first interaction shouldn't be with an SDR or a salesperson. My first interaction should be with a product specialist. Some people I know, OpenView has written about this, maybe someone from product support or customer support or you know, even from the engineering team. No, it's a product specialist. Let me help you understand how to continue to get more value out of this product and how it actually makes sense to expand the usage of this product across your organization or across the entire company. Yeah. So imagine that. So now you have what's called product qualified leads, PQLs. Instead of SQLs and MQLs and SAOs and all this, no, you've got PQLs. And PQLs, as a salesperson, I take that and I'm like, sweet. It's a very different sales motion now. Oh, very different. And by the way, PQLs typically is based upon real analytical data that says if a company has had our product for three months and it's now beyond 25 users has grown organically, the potential yep. of them converting to an enterprise license is 62%. I'm making that number up. Yep. But it gives you so much more insight into uh, is that company going to become a big customer? Totally, totally. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Actually, when I was at Box, it was something that we realized like Box, you know, it's a small group or a large organization. If they did not upload a file within seven days, of getting their box license, the likelihood of them churning was off the charts. It was like 80%.
right? And so the reality is, is what we're trying to do is get them into the product to start getting value right away, which is why instead of like gating all this value in the product, you actually open it up. So they really truly understand how to use the product and how to get value out of it. And that'll accelerate the growth within an organization. Boom, like a Zoom. Totally. Hey, Doug, hopefully I'm going to blow you away with this data point. Uh Uh-oh, sweet. Talks about why product-led growth and your forecast, I'm 100% aligned with. So I just saw benchmark data for Fortune 1000 companies. On average, they have 617 SaaS applications in their organization. That's data point one. Yep. Data point two, 48% of that 617 were purchased by individuals and expensed on expense accounts versus through corporate accounts payable. Right. So Oof. that 48%, 34%, right, were bought by departments and mm-hmm. were not procured by a centralized IT and procurement organization. So you take 48 and 34, that's 82%. Only 18% of the SaaS applications within a Fortune 1000 company were actually vetted procured and contracted by a centralized IT procurement function. Yeah. Now, I also have a problem with that, though, (laughs) because there's a lot of terrible applications out there that also are creating massive security risks for an organization. So we have to be really careful about that, right? So how do you do product-led growth with incredible security compliance capabilities built in so that you're not actually creating a Trojan horse into your organization and creating an absolute shitstorm like a Home Depot or a Target or was it Equifax or something which just gave up all their customer data or something of that nature. So there's a balance there, right? And yes, part of those data statistics you're talking about are kind of around what the rogue IT organizations popping up all over a larger company. I don't know. I mean, I think it's an amalgamation of all of that. It's still all also really new and early. So we still haven't really figured out how to make it all work. But I mean, I guess we'll just keep using Zoom as a poster child of how you can make it work. There you go. And I know, I believe that was an early emergence investment, right? We were the first institutional investors. Yep. Wow. Salesforce, Zoom, you guys got a pretty good track record. Hey, Doug, we're going to wrap up here on the Metrics That Major Up podcast with one last question. For the chief revenue officers and head of sales or marketing or customer success listening to this podcast, that's thinking about raising either a Series A or a Series B What's that single bit of advice that you're like, you got to have this in your mind before you talk to one of us? So the one thing that we commonly challenge new potential investments on is what we're calling customer love. It's Dow over Mal. So just make sure you understand how much your customers are using your product, daily active users over monthly active users. It's one thing to go sell a product for hundreds of thousands of dollars and be like three, four million in revenue after spending very little money in sales and marketing. It's another thing though, if your customers aren't using the product day in and day out. How does this become core to their ecosystem, to their everyday life? How does it become ridiculously sticky where they can't get rid of it? That customer love metric, if you will, daily active users over monthly active users, well, helps us to see how much people really, truly can't get away from this product. And even though I haven't collected this or seen it, my forecast on that was the better that customer love metric, 
the better your gross dollar and net dollar retention is going to be 12, 24, and 36 months down the road. Yeah, for sure. Just for context, by the way, I think Slack's DAO over Mao is something like 85%. Like when people download and open up Slack there, they use it all day, every day. Right. And so it's like, great. Like that's the kind of customer love that we want to see your customers experiencing with your products. Boy, I tell you what, Doug, even though we're the metrics that measure up podcast, what better way to end than understand the customer love quotient for your Amen. Okay. Thank you so much for being a guest (laughs) on the metrics that measure up podcast, Doug. Thanks Ray. So much for having me. I appreciate it, bud. Thank you for listening to today's metrics that measure up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.